0: If any sector of industry would qualify for the R&D tax credit, it's AI. After all, this tax benefit is linked to scientific uncertainty. And what could be more uncertain than the largely unexplored world of artificial intelligence? But what exactly qualifies for R&D in the field of AI? And how are companies using AI handling the challenges it poses To R&D compliance here on the Fiona show, R&D tax credit. We've covered industries that have a surprising amount of R&D opportunities, but today we turn our gaze to an industry with the opposite problem. So many obvious opportunities and uses that it's difficult to know where to begin and to help us sort all of these out and lead today's discussion. I'm going to turn things over to cross-border solutions manager of R&D tax credit, Lydia Clowney. Lydia, you have the floor.
1: Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me back. And I'm here today with Alan Tobin, Uh, he's a Solutions Engineer at Cross-Border Solutions in R&D Tax. Alan, thanks so much for being here.
2: Hey, Lydia, very happy to be here.
1: All right, so Matt mentioned how AI is kind of an obvious place for R&D, but let's talk a little bit more about why. What is it about AI that makes it such a natural for the R&D credit?
2: You know, there's so many aspects of artificial intelligence development work that can qualify, and there's a lot of opportunity areas out there. You know, you have your low-hanging fruit. This is what most would recognize, and that's software development. Then you have your hardware and resolving how the hardware interacts with software for its intended purpose or use. This gets a little trickier. You can create efficiency in certain processes. Well, how do you quantify that? And then, you know, testing new materials to create the optimum use of the artificial intelligence, merging old systems, legacy systems into new automation. And then, of course, your data or business analytic tools. Those are some of the opportunity areas that work talking about when we talk about AI.
1: Okay, great. So that's from the activity side. What about from the expense side? What kinds of expenses are going to go into a credit that's based on an AI activity?
2: It's a great question. It's probably easiest to break it down into maybe five separate categories. You have your staff costs or your wages. You have your subcontractors, also known as your third-party vendors. You have externally provided workers, your EPWs. You have consumables and heat, light, and power. So when you're talking about staff costs, to get specific, uh, we're talking about the software engineers, the people that are actually doing the R&D project. This is the bread and butter of any claim. They don't have to be scientists and academics. That's a common misconception. It's not only lab code R&D that qualifies. You just have to meet the qualifying criteria. One way to think about it, if they're a competent professional whose knowledge and expertise is part of the R&D activities, they count. You know, that's one way to evaluate it. Another overlooked area when we're talking about staff costs is management or even procurement or purchasing, perhaps even sales. This is indirect involvement by the employees who still contribute to that R&D process, and that can also qualify. This is known as direct management or indirect support.
1: Yeah, I do want to ask a quick question. You said any competent professional that's involved in the development. Is there a a level of knowledge or expertise that someone has to have within a certain field or within a certain project in order to be qualified for development? Or can we bring more people in outside of those areas?
2: We can absolutely bring more people in as long as they are supporting the qualified activity, which has to meet those four criteria, the time they spend on it and their corresponding wages can qualify for the credit.
1: I'm thinking about with an AI activity, you know, just a kind of a colloquial understanding of AI from the news. You know, we talk about machine learning, for instance, and you think of the people that will have to maybe go through and tag maybe pictures if we are trying to build a program to identify something. So those low-level employees, maybe they're low-skilled, but if they are contributing in this direct way to the development, we can still bring them in. Would that be correct?
2: Absolutely, And that's sort of the whole point of this is that, you know, I mentioned lab coats before. It's not just lab coat R&D. There's so many different layers of different employees and qualify for the credit. We really want to be very expansive and look everywhere to see who's exactly contributing to the effort. Oh, thanks. Sure. Yeah. The, the second group would be your subcontractors and your EPWs. You know if you don 't have the intelligence in house or the experts in house to work on to complete the r and d you may go to a third party and hire who you need and this expense can also qualify for the r and d in a similar fashion if you don 't have the in house employees to do the r d activities, you may hire temporary workers to really fulfill the same activity that those in house employees may have done. And those are the EPWs, and their time can qualify as well. Now, keep in mind that when it comes to third-party vendors and EPWs, we can only capture 65% of the total costs. And obviously, that follows a review of the rights and risks of any contract. Now, when you're talking about consumables, or you're talking about heat, light, and power, you know, for consumables, this is anything that is used strictly for the R&D process. And it has to be discarded once the R&D work is done. It has to be consumed in that research and development process. Once you've completed your R&D project, you can go back and apportion a part of your utility costs to the R&D expenditure as well. This can be very difficult and time-consuming, but it's available to taxpayers and potentially well worth the review.
1: Sure. Now, in my understanding, most taxpayers aren't going to take utility costs into their R&D credit. Are there special rules or restrictions around taking that as a qualified expense?
2: There are. There are some law out there as well. So that's what I mentioned. It can be difficult. But if you have a robust testing process, for example, or a robust testing room that utilizes more electricity or power or heat or light than is normally used. Those are the types of circumstances that we're looking for. And, you know, obviously the difficult part is quantifying how much extra dollars were spent on those additional utilities, but it is available to taxpayers. And again, it can be a substantial number if you have a significant testing process.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I know in the in modern computing can take a lot of resources to just to run those machines. So so that makes sense.
0: Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be noncompliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer solutions there we go again I'm so sorry big you know what wait who am I kidding sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash TP that's xbs.ai slash TP
1: okay great well you know I think when we are talking about R&D for AI our brains tend to go straight to the software component But is that all there is, or are there maybe other activities apart from maybe simply just a coding effort that would be involved in an AI project?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So let me give you a a hypothetical scenario. You know, imagine a company wants to reduce the amount of manual handling that happens in their warehouse. You know, the current machines they use are standard, they're old school, they aren't able to have automation implemented. So they want to move into robotics, and they decide to develop some artificial intelligence with the necessary upgrades in robotics to make their machines capable of doing this process automatically. They conduct trials, tests, they fail again and again. And believe it or not, demonstrating failures in the R&D process helps you substantiate your claim. It's worth noting your experiments do not have to be a success to qualify for R&D. But in this case, eventually they work it out, they upgrade their machines, And a few years later, they're ready to rock and roll. And let's say each year you qualify for a nice $200,000 credit in R&D. Well, all the above categories of qualified expenses that we just mentioned being factored in and the improved artificial intelligence enhanced process increased revenue too. So it's a win win from two different perspectives
1: absolutely. I can't imagine a lot of projects that would give you a better r o i than actually improving your business process, but then also getting a kind of cherry on top. that's the r and d credit, you know money actually off of your taxes, so yeah, yeah an exciting kind of. Project, if you're gonna, you know, if you want to go through something like that anyway.
2: Absolutely. It's just taking that first step, right?
1: Right, right. And understanding, you know, what is and isn't qualified. And I think maybe also just the documentation. And we were talking before about those extraordinary utility costs and the difficulty in documenting and supporting those. I imagine if you're gonna go through a process like this to make some big improvement on your factory floor. Getting ahead of that, knowing that you might need that data in the future, you can start lining your ducks up and making sure that you you have the information so that when you're trying to show that, hey, you have extraordinary utility costs now uh, as a result of running this project, if you have the baseline, you're going to be much more able to make that case. If you ever do, you know, God forbid, come into an audit situation.
2: That's a great point.
1: I want to kind of pivot a little bit. I'd love to talk a little bit about sort of the intersection between R&D and the work that goes on to do R&D for a tax creditable project and the patent world. So this is kind of the other side of R&D where we're talking a little bit more about intellectual property protections. There seems like there's been some movement here lately in the AI space in particular. Can we talk a little bit about what we've seen recently when it comes to AI and R&D and patents?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Patents are a major issue. The U.S. Patent Office doesn't want to acknowledge patents for inventions made by artificial intelligence. You know, there are plenty of countries out there that have lucrative credits for patent IP or what's called patent boxes you know, but they were really designed to cover these ventures by human beings doing the work or doing most of the work making discoveries. This is at least the argument that's being currently made. And, you know, part of that might very well be because R&D is meant to create jobs. So the more people involved in the R&D, the better. I I think this is a valid reason. But on the flip side, you know, if the R&D is being allocated to AI and it's not costing you much of anything, then you're writing off profits and the patented inventions that your AI came up with, you're getting a big credit without necessarily making a big investment, which goes against the intention of the credit, which is to reward new investment in r and D. A A couple of years ago, July of 2019, we actually saw this happen in a unique case. The US PTO received a patent application for unique light beacon and another for a cup, the design of which was based on fractal geometry. But On the application, the sole inventor of these devices was an AI algorithm named Debus D-A-B-U-S. You know, this stood for a device for the autonomous bootstrapping of unified sentience. And it was described as a sort of a type of correctionalist artificial intelligence.
1: Great
2: name. Yeah, great name, (laughs) (laughs) Debus. The person who applied for it was an actual person. He was named Stephen Thaler. But the inventor on the application was listed as Debus. And, you know, the reason being was that the bus had actually discovered the ideas before a natural person could. And this is where it gets tricky. You know, from 2019 to 2020, the EPO, which is the European Patent Office, the USPTO, and the UK IPO, which is the UK Intellectual Property Office, they all denied the application. The application was essentially getting denied everywhere. Why? Well, the reason for doing this, they said, And they sort of said it in conjunction with each other, was that they require the inventor to be a natural person or a human. So let's get a little deeper into what they said, right? Further, they said inventorship confers upon the inventor certain legal rights. But how do you grant these rights to AI? You know, the inventor must have a legal personality, which AI systems do not enjoy. So what does do not enjoy mean? Right. So, you know, what's fascinating here is kind of respecting AI as its own kind of entity, you know, utilizing this language of natural person and the phrase do not enjoy. But, you know, all of these unions were doing it as if AI can enjoy other kinds of things or rights. But nevertheless, the application on all fronts was denied.
1: That's so interesting. Because at the one hand, they're saying that the person who created the AI or, you know, the person who actually applied can't take credit for that. So in some ways, they are reserving rights to the AI, even out of the other side of their mouth that they're saying this isn't an entity to whom we can grant these other rights. Absolutely. It's a
2: little bit of having their cake and eating it, too. But yeah, it's a catch-22, you know? And, you know, what was really interesting about this is it seemed like the EPO, the UK IPO, and USPTO were all in cahoots with each other because they all were saying essentially the same thing. And that's significant because, you know, in the UK, the rule is simply that the inventor has to be the actual divisor of the invention, which, you know, in this particular case was the bus. According to case law, though, they said there are two requirements underlying that one. And the first is that it must be a natural person. And, you know, even there, there's some question about whether a natural person refers to a human being. And they essentially said, yes, a natural person re- refers to a human being. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. You know, to the UK IPO's credit, though, they did basically say that this is a brand new field and it needs to be discussed further. And there should be debate on this. We could be sure that it's going to come up again.
1: Oh, well, it's going to come up again for sure. And it's interesting to me as well that it seems like all of these governing bodies are working together. They've kind of, even though, the, like you said, the law in the UK is ordered differently, it doesn't have that reference to a human or a specific kind of person, but yet they're still getting on board with what might have been the European governing bodies. Perspective on it. And then on the other hand, you have the United States. We don't even have a patent box or an innovation box regime at this point. So, you know, are we just trying to get ahead of what could come out if we have a a regime change or tax law change? And I think patent box seems like something that I would probably expect to be brought up as a, you know, a US tax measure within the next, you know, five years or so. So you know, are we just trying to get ahead of that and and align with, you know, the European counterpart?
2: I think that's probably the case. Interesting enough, Stephen Taylor, who was not the actual inventor, he couldn't list himself as the inventor either. So really this company with the bus was put in a position where they couldn't get a patent because they couldn't prove that it was a natural person, which, again, when you have all three of these jurisdictions in cahoots together saying, you know, it's the natural person is not AI, it's going to be a difficult battle, but it sounds like at least some of the jurisdictions are open to further discussion down the road.
1: And it seems like it's counter to the spirit of the enterprise. You know, governments are trying to encourage R&D. If we allow there to be this loophole where no one can own or have these safeguards on IP created in this manner, doesn't that just mean that we'd see less uh, development, less innovation Overall, from the general business environment, you know, if we're not going to give the same kinds of protections, I think it would be akin to saying, "Well, you shouldn't do this. We won't you know, or or maybe the AI developed innovations that that come out of a process like that, maybe they become trade secrets. Instead, I know when I worked actually in consulting for for and d projects, I had a number of clients that, even if they had a patentable invention, wouldn 't seek a patent for it, because you know on the one hand, sure you, you might get protection for that intellectual property, but then on the other hand you 're still putting your could otherwise be trade secrets out in the world, allowing other companies to to learn, even just understand what direction you 're going in could advantage other companies that aren 't your own, so this just seems like it would complicate that even more so. And, you know, innovation, we always talk about part of the benefit of R&D and part of the reason why a government would want to subsidize R&D is because the benefits kind of are, you know, a many armed monster with tentacles all over the place and and that my innovation might spur other innovations in other companies. And that's going to sort of you know grow the pie for everyone. So, I mean, that seems like Governments would want to get ahead of that loophole and figure out some way to allow for inventions created through such a method to be, you know, to, to have some kind of even playing field with, with inventions that are legitimately created by humans.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think challenging this is very counterproductive, you know, to R&D in general.
1: A
0: global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it.
1: So it's interesting too, and I keep saying interesting, but I'm sorry, this is like my topic. We're talking R&D, so you're going to hear me say it's interesting a lot, (laughs) but we're talking about something that might be, maybe we can patent our invention, or maybe we can't if it's derived by an AI, but for the R&D credit, we have to have expenses in order to generate a credit, right? I mean, sure, those expenses need to be tied to a qualified activity, but to the extent that we don't have expenses, you know, we can run all the calculations we want. We're not going to actually come out with a, a credit number I can put on my tax return. So if we're using an AI to develop instead of a, a human to whom I'm paying wages, what does that do to our credit? Is there is there still a way to get an R&D credit on an invention that was invented by AI?
2: You know, that's interesting, right? Because the whole idea behind AI is a sort of, eliminate, you know, the amount of hours that employees have to spend on those activities. So you're reducing the wages there, notwithstanding the cost that go into the initial development of the AI. I think that brings up a great question and a dilemma, you know, for companies, you know, what sort of costs are going to qualify once you implement the AI? And I think there's got to be some human touch involved in this as, as well. So, you know, to the extent that you have humans supporting the AI and those AI inventions, then I think those are areas that you need to focus on.
1: Okay, sure, that makes sense, right? It's not happening in a vacuum. Someone's got to set it up, someone's got to run it, someone has to interpret the results or maybe do testing. Or I guess in your warehouse example from earlier, that was an AI component, certainly, but it's likely that that will touch other areas.
2: Yeah, in that example, you would have people that would have to be doing the implementation of the robotics to make sure it's set up correctly, installing the AI into the machinery to make sure that that's running correctly. So there still is a, a process and certainly expenses that can be captured. But I think your point on, you know, the actual invention by the AI is a great one because, you know, if we're saying this is the... You know, this is really the, the generator, the genesis of this invention. How do we quantify those costs? I, I think it's a great question.
1: So can we talk a little bit about AI activities or AI used in R&D and how that corresponds to the four-part test for qualified activities?
2: Yeah, you know, we were talking about that decision earlier. That's being challenged, and it absolutely makes sense to challenge that decision, because when you look at you know, the four criteria for qualifying for the credit undertaken for purposes of discovering information that's technological in nature, resolving technical uncertainty it has to be useful in a new or improved business component, which can be a product process or design. And you have to engage in a process of experimentation. I don't see any obvious way in which AI should be excluded. You know, why shouldn't it qualify if the inventor is AI? And the main difference is that the work can be done in a fraction of the time that it would take a human being. You know, there's a couple of arguments out there. You know, one of the main issues that you had just discussed is with the expenses occurred. You know, you know, ultimately R&D is a tax credit for expenses. And if you use in-house AI instead of a team of workers, then what wages are being captured, right? You know, or simply you just didn't spend enough on it because you're using AI. So we know quantification is going to be critical. You know, another issue is that contract expenses are deductible must be paid to a person. So if you're, you know, Choosing to engage AI as a third-party contractor, are you engaging the AI or are you engaging some other company? You know, perhaps there's some merit there, but, you know, let's make the assumption that you rent an AI inventor algorithm rather than develop, you know, your own. You should be able to qualify it at 65% of that expense. You know, the in-house... Wages are much trickier because, you know, the text states it must be wages paid and the text of the Internal revenue code must be wages paid. And AI does not earn wages. Right. So at least not the way that the law is currently written. So it, it's going to be an interesting couple of years until we can straighten all of this out. And I think sooner or later, you know, the at least the regulations are going to have to be addressed. Yeah.
1: And I could see there being some differences of opinion about how a cost like that would, would be categorized in the first place. Would you call it a software license? In which case, you know, software licenses, intangible, not a credit eligible expense. Or you know, like you said, maybe it could be set up in such a way or maybe an argument could be made that it's a contract research expense and that we're paying a third party company to assist in research. And how they do that is through their AI. In that case, I, I guess I'd say the same thing I say with any contract research expense, which is you got to look at that contract, right? And I would imagine that that contractual analysis uh, would be would be crucial in determining whether it could be an expense you could look at for the credit or not. And I, and I take us right back to our kind of initial discussion about documentation and getting ahead of some of these things. If you know you're going to have an expense like this You know, it might make sense to start talking about the future implications of those contract terms at the outset instead of, you know, two years down the line when the project's done. suddenly you're trying to do an R&D credit and, oh, shoot, you know, if we had just changed that one clause, you know, but nope, it says that we're renting their software. So, hey, now it looks like we're out of luck.
2: Right. I totally agree. I mean, you know, the four corners of the contract are going to mean everything. But, you know, let's assume to your point that we meet the rights, we meet the risks arguments. So it's all favorable to us as the taxpayer. What do we care how the vendor gets their work done, right? If they use AI or not, as long as we meet those contractual criteria, then the cost of the spends on that contract is still available for us at 65%.
1: I think we'll definitely be keeping an eye on how the discussion shakes out, particularly the discussion with regard to the legal uh, aspect of AI. What are we going to say? ai is you know is it more akin to a human with the rights and the responsibilities that go into that or or are we going to see something else do you have any expectations any wild guesses about how we'll see this flesh out
2: you know this seems like science fiction right 20 years (laughs) 20 years ago who would have ever thought we'd be here in this position but i think it has to be addressed you know that's That's how I feel. I I think that sooner or later, all the different taxing jurisdictions are going to have to acknowledge that AI is real, that it's important to recognize that it's part of the R&D process. And we shouldn't be punishing companies that rely on AI to get the R&D done by not letting them, you know, claim the costs related to the AI. I think it's inevitable that legal obsessions will have to be made, you know, to, to fix this in terms of the ai inventors yeah i mean that's that's a real discussion that has to happen so we'll see you know we'll see what happens down the road will artificial persons be considered a natural person i i don 't know, I mean perhaps you know will artificial persons if that 's added to the regulations of the IRC will they be able to enjoy the benefits you know that language from that prior case so I, I think it 's very interesting. Uh, my guess is that it 's going to have to be addressed because as we move. Further and further into the AI world, you're going to have companies, significant companies that spend a lot of money in R&D that are not going to want to lose that benefit on a domestic or global basis. So I think it's something that will have to be addressed in the short term.
1: I'm imagining, you know, like we have a social security number, we've got a Taxpayer identification number? Are we going to have an artificial intelligence identification number? It's a special tax class and they're filing their own returns. It's hard to see the IRS or, you know, really the government. IRS is just the messenger, but uh, allowing them to, allowing an AI to enjoy the benefits and not be responsible for the uh, attendant responsibilities as well, but leave that kind of pile onto the tax code complexity for, for some <laughs> other time. I do want to hit on just. One other topic before I let you go today, and that is kind of talked around this just a skosh when you mentioned the AI process and how can we use AI within the R&D process. And I guess I wonder filing an R&D tax credit, calculating and filing an R&D tax credit can be a pain in the butt. Can AI help?
2: Yeah, it can certainly help. You know, when you think about it from the big picture, listen, the IRS is to some extent already relying on artificial intelligence to send out levy notices and penalty notices, not necessarily in the R&D field, but in other, you know, aspects of of what they do on a daily basis. So it's out there. You know, on the taxpayer side, it could certainly automate a repetitive process. You know, it could reduce time consuming tasks, you know, and that's really the general benefit of relying on artificial intelligence. And, you know, as a tax professional, you certainly know how repetitive our jobs can be. So that's really no small benefit. You know, data could be organized and key data could be extracted instantly. So that, that centralization, the ability to pull that information is really, really very valuable. And, you know, there's other ways that it can help as well. You know, you can get more accurate information into your tax provision and forecast your tax burden. I think every taxpayer would want to do that to get real numbers in their tax provision. You can better identify credit opportunities. You know, AI may be able to, for example, just do a quick search of job titles and say, hey, you know, this job title typically qualifies in this industry, you should take a look at the person behind that job title or in the alternative, say, hey, this job title typically doesn't qualify in this industry. So maybe you can get ahead of it and reduce some stress if you were ever audited. So those business analytics, I mean, knowing that the IRS is using it, you know, the centralization of data and being able to really go through the data instantaneously, those are all key aspects of how AI can help your R&D process.
1: That's the great dream of technology, right? Is that it actually makes our lives easier. So thank you, Alan, so much. I really enjoyed the discussion today and I appreciate you coming back on with us.
0: Oh, thank you, Lydia. My pleasure as always. And shortly after recording this episode, we received breaking news concerning the AI patent case we discussed. While patent offices in the U.S., U.K., Europe, and Australia had all denied the AI inventor Dabas a patent, an Australian federal judge has pushed back against the rejection. Justice Jonathan Beach has decided the term inventor need not be defined as a natural person making it possible for AI to be officially recognized as an inventor. However, a non-human inventor cannot be the applicant of a patent. Thus, the patents will ultimately fall to the owner of the DABAS system, in this case, U.S.-based Dr. Stephen Thaller. Australian patent attorney Dr. Mark Summerfield described the decision as, quote, Well ahead of the dictionaries, unquote, in terms of how the word inventor is commonly used in society today. At the end of July, Dabas scored its first official patent in South Africa, signaling it may be time for the dictionaries and society to catch up because the evolution of this technology is not likely to slow down. Thank you to Alan and Lydia for joining us for this informative discussion. If you like this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in our tax suite. That's The Fiona Show Transfer Pricing and The Fiona Show Tax Provision. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week.